All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We finally made it to chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 3. It's page 977 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Please open if you don't have one. If you are here and you don't happen to own a Bible, uh, we want to give you a Bible. So right over at the welcome table, we have free Bibles that are just for you, just for being here because we love you. We're, We're glad that you're with us this morning. Well, if you haven't been with us before, for the last seven months, don't worry, I've taken breaks through that, but for the last seven months, we have been slowly working our way through the book of Ephesians, little by little, bit by bit, just so that we can come to know and understand and love all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ and bringing us together as a people for his own possession. It's been a glorious, uh, just a glorious time for me to just rejoice and delight in the gospel. It's been a weighty task, but I pray that as we've gone through this and slowed down to really think about the gracious nature of the gospel that we have received, that it has given you a sense of awe and wonder as well. That you too have delighted in the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ and how God has brought us together. That by his grace, he not only saves us and reconciles us and forgives us of our sin, but he actually draws us near and makes us one, changing our lives so that together we are display of the glory and power and wonder and awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching world. In chapters 1 through 3, I mean, they've been filled with a lot of deep and precious truth. It's been teaching us about all that God has blessed us with, every spiritual blessing that he has given us in the heavenly places, things like election and adoption and redemption and forgiveness, how we've received the promised Holy Spirit. We've received prayer as Paul has prayed for us that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that that our eyes would be open to understand just how great and glorious this truth really is, that we might know this hope that has been given to us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe. Paul has reminded us of who we were apart from Christ that we were dead in our sin, that we were enslaved by the world, the devil, our own sinful flesh, that we were hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world until God, by his grace and mercy and love, made us alive together in Christ. Not only restoring us vertically to God, but also bringing us together as his people to reflect his glory together. As our lives are being changed, as our lives are being transformed, as he is bringing us near and making us one, he holds us up as a display, as a trophy, as a beacon for the world to know that God is great, that God is glorious, that he is powerful, that he is wise, that his plan of salvation is working. The church is meant to make that known. And we get to participate in that. It's amazing. All of that is in the background of what we've covered so far. And so when you think about Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, you can describe it as ethical theology. 
I know that's a big word, right? But it's just had a lot to say about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Lots and lots and lots of deep truth that has moral ramification for us. But what it's done is prepared our hearts. It's kind of set us up here, ready to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So it hasn't really told us as much of what we are to do in light of that as prepping us, preparing us, getting us up there, ready to respond, And now in chapters 4 through 6, he's making a turn. It's moving from uh, ethical theology to theological ethics. How do we live in light of all that we have seen so far in chapters 1 through 3? Right? What, what difference does that make for us? What should we do? And just like so many of Paul's letters, he moves from doctrine to duty, from theology to practice, from truth to application, from exposition to exhortation. And so here's where we now are. What do we do? In light of who God is, in light of all that he has done for us in Christ, this glory of the gospel, the question now comes, how shall we then live? What does this mean for us? What are the implications of this glorious salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ? How are we to live in light of and reflect the truths that we have seen in Ephesians 1 through 3? How do we become what we now are in Jesus Christ? So that's the direction that the rest of Ephesians is going to take. Chapters 4 through 6, that's all that it's unpacking. Based upon all that we've seen that's true in 1 through 3, this is now how we are to live in light of that. And now what Paul is making, uh, that Paul is making that turn from ethical theology to theological ethics or from doctrine to life, the very first thing that he calls us to is unity. Unity. And that is a big deal. I don't want you to dismiss the weight of what he's saying here because by nature we are those who sin and are prone to sin against one another. And when somebody goes and they sin against me, what do I do? I sin back, right? And so what we tend to do is separate and divide and remove ourselves rather than doing what this is calling us to. We, want, we don't want to love one another. We don't want to bear with one another. We don't want to be patient with one another. We don't, we don't want to put others before ourselves. Instead, we want to separate. We want want to divide. We do not want to do the hard work of pursuing unity. That's who we are by nature. But that's not what we're called to do. No, what God is about to tell us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, is that the call of the gospel that we learned about in 1 through 3 is a call to community. The call of the gospel is a call to community. So I want us to see it in the text. So read along with me. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In this passage, we see three practical implications of the gospel call to Christ for all of us. First of all, Paul urges us to walk worthy of the calling. Second, we are called to love like Christ. And third, Paul exhorts us to eagerly maintain unity. 
So first, what does it mean to walk worthy of the calling? Well, we've got we've to clarify what this calling is first. This passage begins with the word, therefore, right? It's drawing a conclusion. It's saying, consequently, for this reason, based upon all that has gone before, this is now how we are to respond. And so what he's saying here is in light of all that the holy creator God of the universe has done for us in Jesus Christ, this is how we are to now live. Based upon all that we've seen in one through three, this is what we are to do. Live worthy of the calling. What's that calling? Well, it starts with the gospel, right? Though we have all rejected God, we've all attempted in one fashion or another to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I'm God seeking to control my life and all there is, just kind of keep God on the fringes or out on the side. God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of obedience to God, a life that you and I can never live. And he laid down that life as a ransom for our sin. He paid the penalty that was due our rebellion against him. He rose again three days later to prove who he was, that he was truly the son of God, to prove that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. But ultimately, he did this. In his resurrection, he proves that you and I, if by faith we live for him, are a new creation. That a change has really happened in us. That all of those whom God has effectively called to himself, those whom God has changed to, to turn away from themselves and follow after Christ, they are now able to obey God. Where before, all of our efforts, all of our works were tainted They were marred by our sin. Now, because of what God has done, the effective work of salvation that he has worked in our hearts and in our lives, we can now obey him because we are a new creation. We have a new identity in Jesus, and it's changed everything. It's changed our longings. It's changed our desires. It's changed what we live for. And so we want now to live in that new identity. That's the calling that he's talking about here. Paul is speaking of more than this general call of all mankind to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the effectual call that works in the hearts of God's chosen people to lead them, as it says in John 6, to respond to him so that they might have new life. It's the call of God that's based upon God's sovereign choice that works out God's saving purposes. Or as we've seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have to understand that that is the call that Paul is speaking of here in verse 1. This call of God that reaches in and penetrates our hearts, giving us new longings and affections and desires so that we turn and we respond to him in faith. And we long now to live for him, to live in that new identity. That's the calling that he's speaking of here. And that's exactly what we've seen in Ephesians 1 through 3, that all of those who are in Christ have been elected 
by God for holiness. He has adopted them into his family through the blood of Christ. He has redeemed and forgiven them. He has sealed them with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. And that even when we were dead in our sin, that God in his mercy and his love and his grace made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This call of God is totally effective. It will accomplish all of its purposes by the lavish grace of God that's at work within us. But before we can move away from the nature of this calling, what is this call that we have received? We also have to remember this, that according to Ephesians 1 through 3, that this gospel call is not just the call of individuals to Christ. The gospel call is a call to community. That our Christian walk is never divorced from community. Even in the words here in verse 1, he's saying, you all are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you all have been called. It's together. That prior to salvation in Christ, we were hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. But as a result of God's effective call in us, as it says, just for example, in chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Because you cannot remove the call of Christ in our lives from this call to community. We have been called to citizenship in God's kingdom, to be part of God's family with each other. Even the word church, ecclesia, literally means the called out ones. Right? The very understanding of the church are those who have been called out by God together. We can't remove that. All of this is the result of God's lavish and rich grace that he has given us. A grace that we can never earn. A grace that we can never deserve. That by his grace, God has made us a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called... We cannot look at that verse apart from everything else that's gone before. We have to understand one through three before we can get what this passage means. And Paul is saying here, from one brother to another, be who you now are in Jesus Christ. Right? Live in such a way that together your lives reflect the gracious and extravagant calling that you have received. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul could have commanded it. He had the right. He had the authority. He's an apostle. He could have just said, listen, you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But that's not what he does. Instead, he pleads with us as a brother to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an indicative here. He's saying, listen, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Do that. 
Paul chooses to plead with us to live in light of that new identity. He's urging us, let the pattern of your lives reflect the nature of the gospel that has saved you. Walking walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is not trying to earn your salvation or earn your place at the table. It's simply living in light of who you really are. That what God has done is secured and now I am simply recognizing and accepting and resting and responding to my new identity, to our new identity, being who we now really are in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever spent any time with adoptive families, you know, families who have adopted children. But oftentimes there's this period of acclimation where they get used to being a family. You know, they, even though the paper is signed, and at the point that the paper is signed, that child now belongs to that family. They are part of that family. They are adopted into that family. Often it takes a while for that to really sink in, for them to actually live and function and act like a family. It takes a while for bonds to be developed and trust to be gained and for that child maybe to call the parents mom and dad. And that though at the moment that paper is signed, they are family, it takes them a while to function. There's that period of adjustment for them to get used to living in their new identity. And so when God calls us, he adopts us into his family. But we don't immediately live in light of that call. It's hard for us to embrace and accept the fact that I am a child of God. That he has changed my heart. He's given me new affections. I I now don't have to live for all of that stuff that I lived for before. You have to understand that what adoption is, is more than God taking us out of our former situation and kind of pulling us out of that. He's now taking us and placing us into his family so that we might live and reflect and act like a part of that family. Same values, same characteristics. I mean, if you spend time with your family, what do you do? You start acting like one another, right? That's what he's calling us to do. Reflect his nature and character as we truly live in light of the fact that we are his sons and daughters. We are to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, not to earn our place in the table, but to have our lives adorn the truth of the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, Paul actually says that we are to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. That when God saves us, he adorns us with the precious jewels of salvation. He covers us with the pure garment of Christ's righteousness. He showers us with the riches of his glory and splendor. And like that little girl who's given her grandmother's wedding ring, knowing how completely undeserving we are of that treasure, we are called to wear it, to let our walk, our, the ebb and flow of our daily lives be a thoughtful and careful and adorning display of that treasured gift that we have been given. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, not to earn the calling, but to honor the calling. You're not a cop or a soldier or a judge just because you put on their garments, right? 
Those uniforms that they wear are meant to represent certain truths, certain values, and the vows that they have made to uphold them. They stand for something. Those uniforms stand for their honored positions that they have been given and that they have an obligation to live in light of that honor that they have received. And it's a travesty. It's a scandal when they don't. An unfair judge, a crooked cop, right? We, we get that. And the same is true for those who have been clothed with Christ's righteousness, that our lives are to match, they're to reflect, they're to be consistent with, they are to adorn the truths that we believe. And there's a huge problem if they don't. If we have doctrine, we think right things about God. We, we love the Bible. We love systematic theology. And we study, we study, we study. But we don't have a moral life. Then our lives tell lies about God. That we actually bring reproach upon Christ. But the opposite is just as much true. We can live a very, very moral life. Right? Doing good unto others. But if we don't have doctrine, if we cannot give a defense for the truth that we hold to, then we're really at that point no different than an altruistic atheist or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. There's really nothing at that point that separates us. We're just nice people. Now Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.16, that we are to guard our lives and our doctrine, for by so doing you will save both yourself and those who hear you. If our lives don't match what we profess to be true, we will lead ourselves and others astray. But if our lives are not grounded upon the truth, then we have no footing in which to stand And we're just as likely to lead other people astray because we're saying that the gospel is something that the gospel is not. Though we can never deserve the treasure that we've been given in Christ, we are called to adorn it well. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To reflect the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ to live in such a way to display the immeasurable worth of Christ to others so that they might see it and find it to be precious too. And once again, Paul puts himself forward as an example of how to do this. Not that this is what you have to do in order to display that, but Paul is an example He practices what he preaches. He says, I, a prisoner for the Lord. He actually says, the prisoner for the Lord. (laughs) Paul's willingness to suffer for Christ and for our glory serves as a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. He's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And when he found it, he covered it up. And in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has to buy that field. You know, if Paul was living a very comfortable and easy life, if he's sitting in a mansion somewhere and he was saying, hey, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, we're like, yep, no biggie. But because he was a prisoner for Christ, he's preaching to us with both his life and his doctrine, saying, listen, Jesus is worth it. 
I want you to believe in Jesus and I want you to love Jesus just like I do because he's worth more than anything else. He's worth more than that. His life adorned his doctrine. Friends, chapters one through three have told us over and over and over and over again that Jesus is altogether lovely. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is of immeasurable worth. And the question then becomes, can people see in your life that Jesus is altogether lovely? When they look and they see who you are, they see in such a way that, that Jesus is held up as beautiful, as worthy. Well, I love him. And I want you to see that, not just in my words, but in the way I live my life. Are you truly living in that new identity that you have right now in Jesus? If that's true, if that's so, then praise God for that. That's amazing. Thank you for your testimony. I love it. And pray that God would strengthen you to do so more and more and more and more. But if it's not, and I'm guessing that that catches most of us, then the answer is not working harder. The answer is not putting up some front and pretend that Jesus is of great value. That's not the goal. That's not the solution. You cannot create worth for Jesus. Either you love him or you don't, right? You can't pretend and and put on a show and put up a front and and think that you're going to help people to see the value of Jesus if you yourself do not value Jesus, right? People can see through it. We're not that dumb. And so the solution is not working harder, not pretending, not faking it, The solution is actually to go back and to meditate on the truths and the wonderful display of the gospel we see in Ephesians 1 through 3. To go back there and sit and rest until you find yourself, until you see the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ, until you see who God is and what he's done for us and just how undeserving we are of that and in awe and in wonder, then then you will be changed. Go back and study. Meditate upon these glorious truths. Pray, pray chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 for yourself. That God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Pray chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. That God would give you the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled unto all the fullness of God. That you might love Jesus more than anything else. And you know, as you grow in your love for Christ and your thankfulness for all that God has done for us in him, As you take joy in your salvation and the glory of being a part of God's family, you will gradually and progressively walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So friends, don't do anything. Don't put up a front. Go back 
pray and think. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to adorn and reflect the worth of Christ in our lives. But how do we do that? Well, good for us. We get four, three more chapters of figuring out how to do that. Right? Four through six is going to lay that out in great detail. But the first practical implication, the most immediate practical implication he gives us is right there in verse two, that we are called to love like Christ. You know, it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called when we are all by ourselves, right? It's pretty easy to convince ourselves, you know what? I am doing pretty good here, right? Walking worthy, that's me, until you add other people in the mix and then suddenly our true colors are beginning to show, right? You know, I can... I can go down into my basement, you know, my, my office, my study down there, and I can go down and have this amazing quiet time. I'm sitting there in my nice comfy chair, and I'm sipping on my coffee, and I'm, I'm reading, and God is speaking to me through his word, and I'm praying, and it's just this amazing time with the Lord. And then I'll go upstairs, and I'll open the door into the calamity. My kids are happily but loudly playing together in between bickering. My poor dear wife is somewhere in a corner, patiently loving them well, just trying to keep from pulling her hair out. Right? As soon as I open the door, it's just like this wave of noise and chaos whooshing over me. Right? <laughs> and I'm starting to tense up. And I'm feeling it, right? And, you know, I'm there, how's it going? I'm treading carefully, right? Because my wife, she's doing great at loving our kids, but she's not so happy right now. Suddenly, there's this loud shout and lots of crying. Someone has inflicted pain upon another yet again. And in that moment, all good feelings, gone, right? Just Everything walking in a manner worthy of the calling. What was that? I've forgotten all about that, right? Like any, any attempt to deceive myself into thinking that I am now following God and I am worthy of this calling at that moment, gone, and I am ready to descend upon that house with the wrath of God. And it took moments, moments. But God is gracious to remind us that there is still much work to be done. And you know what he uses to do it? He uses each other. You know, I've been given this great treasure in Christ, but I'm still learning what it means to reflect that treasure in my life. The gospel call is a call to community because God has called us into his kingdom, into his people into his family. That's not me and Jesus. That's not a solitary confinement there, right? And just like the illustration of my family, God is using these relationships to help us and each other to grow in our ability to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so in verse 2, Paul explains how we are to do that. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are essential qualities for anyone who is going to adorn the gospel of Christ. First, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, it requires all humility. Not some humility, not a little bit of humility, all humility. In Paul's day, you have to understand, just like today, humility, not a virtue. Right? That didn't get you anywhere in life. You could not advance yourself in society if you were humble. No, what you had to do is exalt yourself. You had to put yourself out there. You had to talk yourself up. You had to help people to recognize your great and infinite worth and how they needed you in their lives. And it didn't matter what you did or what you said or who you had to step on. You did it because you are worthy of their adoration. Right? Pride was a virtue in that day, not humility. Humility was the mindset of a slave. Quite literally, it means the lowliness of mind of that of an indentured servant. Now, who wants that? To have the mindset of a slave to serve others? But Jesus, you know, changed all of that. The Son of God, the King of the universe, the Lord over all, humbled himself, as it says in Philippians 2, by making himself nothing and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord over all there is came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if that's the case, if that's what our Lord has done and we are his followers, then we are called to do the same. Humility is essential for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. John Stott writes, The pride is more than the first of seven deadly sins. It is the essence of all sin. Now, Scripture has a ton to say about pride, but let me just give you the Cliff Notes version, right? God hates pride more than anything else. God hates pride more than anything else. When we are proud, we are contending with God for supremacy in our lives, and we are exalting ourselves over and against God. Pride itself is a contradiction of God's very nature. He is a humble God. It's a contradiction of the very nature of salvation, of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Pride leads us to rob God of the glory that belongs to him alone and attempt to keep it for ourselves. Pride seeks to be worshipped. You can't worship God if you are worshipping yourself and seeking for others to worship you. Pride refuses to acknowledge our utter dependence upon God. There is nothing that will destroy our walk our community, and our very lives more than pride, which is why he calls us to all humility. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, which I commend to all of you, defines humility as an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness 
and our own sinfulness. Friends, if you are not thinking very deeply about the holiness of God, and in light of that, taking an open, honest look at yourself, you'll be guaranteed to be proud. It's going to come out. It's only by recognizing who we are in light of him that we can uh, grow in humility. I mean, how could we honestly and carefully read Ephesians 1 through 3 and then turn and seek to make much of ourselves? It makes no sense. Only if we refuse to see ourselves rightly. Now, the product of the gospel in our lives of rightly understanding the doctrine of chapters 1 through 3 is all humility. Complete humility. But to humility, he adds all gentleness. Now, gentleness does not mean weakness. So men take heart. God is not calling you to be soft, effeminate lapdogs. That's not what it means. Humility is strength under control. That's ultimately what it is. It's not asserting my own way. It's not putting myself first and demanding my own rights, okay? The opposite of humility, I mean, in gentleness, think in terms of a bully. A bully uses his power and his strength to dominate someone else, right? But the opposite of that, gentleness, is not being the one that's getting beat up on and shoved in the locker. The opposite of humility is the same bully being changed by the gospel so that he uses his strength and ability to love others. To serve them rather than himself. To not insist upon his own way. To not hold and exalt the sense of his own self-importance. But use the giftings, use the talents, use the strengths that the Lord has given him for the good of others. It is consistent with the very love of Christ To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel requires all humility and all gentleness. But to that he adds with patience. And what this word means is holding persistently to one's convictions even when the circumstances make that difficult. Holding to our convictions, which I love, even when circumstances make it difficult. It means being able to bear up under provocation. It means long-suffering, aggravating people. Think in terms of church context, patience means enduring people that are hard to endure. Right? It's taking a punch without giving one back. It's, It's enduring without retaliating or without breaking down. It's the same forbearance that we see in God in Romans chapter 2 that is meant to lead us to repentance. You know, if the Lord had not been patient with us, then who could stand? Therefore, we are to extend the same patience to one another so that our lives might indeed display the gospel. But the next phrase is my favorite of all. Paul says, bear with one another in love. He's saying, endure one another. Tolerate one another. Not in the politically correct sense, but tolerate one another. Right? That... I love this because Paul does not pretend, even for a moment, that living together as a church would be easy. He's not deceiving us into thinking that it's going to be 
comfortable. It's going to be delightful. It's going to be filled with joy and happiness and, you know, thanksgiving that it's always going to be light and fluffy. No, he's saying, yeah, you're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to be patient with one another. You are going to have to humble yourself when somebody kicks you in the teeth. That you're going to have to be gentle and not return favor for favor. There will be times when others sin against you in this body, in this church, in this family. It will happen. But he says, endure it faithfully. Bear with one another in love. And he's not calling us just to grit our teeth and take it. And he's certainly not calling us to turn tail and run or to fight back. No, he's calling us to respond with love, to actually seek the best interest of others, even at our own personal cost, to seek the welfare of the whole community before our own. And we can do this because we are recipients of a far greater love. That God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God himself is working right now, giving us the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And if he is doing that, if he is loving me that much, then I can love you. I can bear with what you're handing me right now. I can tolerate that. I can endure that. If we truly understand the love that he has given us, then out of the overflow of that love, we too can humbly and gently and patiently love each other to display the unity and the glory of the gospel. We can love like Christ to reflect the love of Christ because we have been given the love of Christ. Now, we could talk about these for a very, very long time. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And and I was so, so tempted to. But if I did, we wouldn't get to our third point. Maybe that's hindsight's 2020. We'll see how I think about that in a month from now. But I'm trusting right now in the work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts that he is helping you right now to examine your own heart attitudes to see areas of pride, to see areas of exalting and asserting yourself, of seeing areas of impatience and not bearing with one another and failing to love each other, right? I'm trusting him to do that without me unpacking this a little bit more. If he has, then the response is to repent and believe so that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we might bear with one another in love. So the call of the gospel is a call to walk worthy of the calling. It's a call to love like Christ. And third, it is a call to eagerly maintain unity. The church, in its most simple definition, is a gospel community. All right, if you had to explain it, Most simply, that's the way you do it, a gospel community. And the root meaning of that word community means quite literally with unity or common unity. It requires unity. And yet if you look around to most of the churches that exist out there, you see 
a lot of disunity. You see that they sort of express just the opposite, right? Contra-unity, disunity. That's, that's the kind of thing that you see. It's so commonplace that we actually expect a level of disunity in our churches. You know, when I moved up here to start this church, I would have conversations with people about moving up here to plant this church, and they're like, wait, wait, wait. You, you moved here to plant a church, and the reason why they ask that question, they're so confused about the idea of church planting is because, you know, if they grew up or they lived around this area for decades, what they understood was that every church that was started that was planted was the result of a war or a split. That there once was one church, they got into a big fight and a group left and started another church. That's what church planting was to them. And so for me to come up here and actually start a church was completely foreign to them. And I was amazed by that. And it's not just this place. It's everywhere, okay? You need to understand, I'm not picking on Champaign-Urbana, you know, this community. It's everywhere that this is the dynamic that people hold to. And what's so sad about that is that not only do they expect a certain level of disunity within the church, but they actually believe that disunity is at the heart of the conception of the church. And I was just, my heart broke when I heard that. But just as we've seen in chapter 2, the call of the gospel is a call to community. It's a call to reconcile. It's a call to live together as a display of the gospel. Verse 3 says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That we are to eagerly, that we are to zealously, to take great pains to make every effort to hasten and hurry towards the maintenance of unity. It's it's zealous. It's intentional. It's purposeful pursuit. We are to proactively and intensely move towards it, not just expecting it to happen, not just thinking to ourselves, well, it'll just go away. This problem will just go away. If I just give it more time, then everything will smooth itself over. No, we must make every effort at great pains to maintain that unity as a church. It means it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to hurt. You know, members don't leave the church. Churches don't split as the result of irreconcilable differences. They're actually the result of laziness, apathy, ignorance, fear of man, and personal pride and arrogance. That's why churches split. More often than not, disunity is the result of drifting, not division. And so for us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, it requires that we actively pursue unity with each other. That means you don't wait for the other person. You go to them. But look again at this verse. It says that we are eager to maintain, to keep, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. It's not that God is requiring us to create unity or build unity, make unity happen. When unity wasn't there, we're simply called to maintain it, to eagerly maintain it, to keep it, to preserve it. 
When we are united to Christ by faith, God the Holy Spirit unites us both to God and to each other. He seals us and guarantees our inheritance for God, according to chapter 1, and he is building us together into a dwelling place for God, according to chapter 2. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And through him, God is strengthening each of us with his power in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That the Spirit right now is doing that. It is the unity of the Spirit. It's the unity that comes from the Spirit. Once again, we see that God is at work. That God is doing it. That it is already there. It's the unity that has come from him and we are simply to eagerly maintain it. It's just like a garden. God plants the garden. God provides the ground, the seed, the rain. He sets its limits and its borders. He determines its growth. We can't cause a plant to grow. We can help it to grow, but we can't cause it to grow. God does that. But he calls us to cultivate it to weed, to water, to till, to prune, to sow. But God himself provides the growth. And what happens if we fail to maintain the garden? Weeds begin to grow. Life is, is being removed. Life, healthy life, the life that we want to see is being removed from the garden. It's being replaced with weeds. It's thorns and thistles, right? That it doesn't produce as much as it did. Some plants even die. And in the worst case scenario, the, the garden dies altogether. That, that, was the, that was what happened to our garden this summer when Phyllis was laid up. Like, I didn't have time to deal with the garden. Our garden was just overgrown, barely produced anything. But you know what happened? This was amazing. Phyllis started feeling better. We went out one day and we, we, we reworked that garden. We pulled up all the weeds. We redid the soil. You know, like we tilled the soil. We, we watered it and all that kind of stuff. And you know what happened? Plants began to grow. Plants that we didn't even, it's not like we replanted. You understand? These were seeds that were already in the ground. Began to well up. Began to grow. It was amazing to see that. And the same is true for the unity of the church, the unity that comes from the Spirit. God is faithful and he will complete his purposes. He doesn't need us for that. The church will continue whether we participate in it or not. He has given us the great privilege to eagerly maintain the unity that comes from the Spirit. But we are also to do so in the bond of peace. The bond of peace is not like this voluntary bond that you and I make together. I, I agree to make peace with you, right? That's not what he's talking about here. The peace that he is speaking of is the peace that we now have with God and we, with each other through the gospel. It's the peace that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that was hostile to us, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
The peace that we now have is a bond. It's a fastener that attaches us to God and to each other. That it actually binds us together as a fetter. That's what he's talking about here with this bond of peace. That word bond literally means sinews or ligaments. It's that organic material that attaches our muscles to our bones. It's that level of attachment. It's that level of unity, that level of connectedness that we have as a result, not of what we do, but of Christ. It's the bond of peace. That is what is accomplished in our union with Christ, that we are dynamically fastened to God and to each other, that God's work, is, that's what it is accomplished in us, that we are united to him and we are united to each other. Well, if that's the case, Chet, then where does disunity come from? How does that happen? Does it come from Satan? No. Because Jesus himself says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Does it come from false teachers, false prophets, false sons and daughters? No. First John tells us that they came out of us, but they were not one with us. And so where does it come from? Where does this disunity come from? Look around the room. Examine your hearts. The unity of the church is never destroyed from the outside, but from within. Now, if our unity comes from the Holy Spirit, it's given, it's ours, it's the unity of the Spirit, and we are bound together through the peace that comes from Christ, that that's who we really are, then we have to understand that disunity is an act of violence against Christ, the Holy Spirit, and his church. It is an act of of violence. It is like trying to rip the muscle away from the bone. That's what we're doing in disunity. Whether we are actively pursuing disunity or whether we're passively sitting back and letting it happen. That's what we're doing. When we are proud and we seek our own way, using our strength, the strength that God gave us to abuse those who are weaker, we tear at the bonds that Christ has made. When we fight and we war, when we are impatient, when we fail to bear with one another in love, we actually strike against the very means that God has given us for life. And we smack against the very symbol that God has given us and in us and for us to be the display of his glory. When we refuse to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we are a fire that burns at the tie that binds us together. And when we, in fear or stubbornness or apathy or indignance, fail to reconcile and pursue unity, we seek to rip the muscle away from the bone. We tear at the bond of peace that holds us together. We are being active or it's just rooted in our hearts and in our minds and we're doing nothing about it. Disunity is an act of violence against Christ and his church. You know, when we fail to pursue unity, 
What we're doing is saying this problem we're facing right now, it's bigger than Christ. What I want is more important to me than what God wants. What that person did to me is beyond Christ's ability to heal. That that sin is bigger than God's grace. That I am more concerned about my own glory than I am about the glory of Christ. We think that Christ can save us from the consequences of our sin, but he cannot actually save us from our sin. Whether we are active or passive, basically what we are saying with our lives is that Ephesians 1 through 3 is not true. That I don't actually believe a word of it. I know that for some of you, you've come from churches that have been disunified. And I hope to talk about that more next week as far as ways of thinking about where it's appropriate and inappropriate. But for now, we're called to wrestle internally in our hearts with where are those attitudes of disunity in us? Where is that root of bitterness? Where is that hardness of heart or that fear or that apathy, that indignance that we would not be willing to pursue those things, to not walk worthy of the calling, to not with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love, not eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The reason why God calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to love like Christ and to eagerly pursue unity is because Ephesians 1 through 3 is true. It's real. It's powerful. And it's working. God has changed us. So now we are a new creation, a new humanity in Christ So let's be who we truly are. Let's repent. Let's reconcile. Let's eagerly pursue unity. Let's go to our brothers and sisters and make our sins known. Because the call of the gospel is a call to community. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks into the very depths and recesses of our soul and how it has practical implication for every moment, every thought, every word, and every deed. And Lord, I pray right now, more than anything, is that our desire would be to love Christ more than anything. Because if we love Christ more than anything, Lord, I know that, that we would be willing to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, um, to not perfectly, but humbly, and gently, and patiently, and lovingly, Uh, work these things out for your glory and for the good of others. And so, Lord, help us. Bring, uh, may your spirit just kind of reveal in our hearts areas of sinfulness and disunity and division. And may we not treat those lightly. May we see them for what they are as an act of violence against Christ and your spirit and the church. And may we pursue unity together because it 
It puts the gospel on display. God, I thank you for the ways that you are doing that right now. I look forward and hope to seeing the way that you continue to do that. God, you are good and gracious. And at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that we would take great comfort in knowing who we are as your children, that we are yours, and that we would long to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we would be who we are and know for certain that you will bring to completion your work in the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, may that be a sweet and comfort to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.